Well, thank you guys so much. Um, okay, since I'm getting asked by everybody, uh, yeah, I had the surgery on Wednesday, arthroscopic knee surgery. It went very well, very successful. Uh, I felt incredible Wednesday afternoon. Uh, you know, they let me out of the surgery center the hospital about one and came home. And of course, Linda drove me home and my goodness, Wednesday afternoon, I was walking on it and I was doing things and I thought, this, this is a snap. We're just going to, uh, life starts again tomorrow like normal, you know, the, uh, one day off, no problem. And somewhere, middle of the night, I guess it was a combination of uh, anesthesia wearing off, the block wearing off, and a truck coming through my bedroom and hitting me. I woke up Thursday morning painfully aware that I had had knee surgery and my my knee was swollen up, and uh, Thursday was not a good day. Uh, Friday was not a great day. Yesterday got a little better, uh, <laughs> and here I am today. So uh, I've got my post-op appointment tomorrow morning, and I'm um, teaching a class Tuesday night uh, at the King's University at this point, and I'm, I feel like I can do that okay, but whether I'm driving to it or not, I might still be, Linda may be driving me the next couple days, so... You know, middle of the week, I'm hoping I'll be much more, uh, you know, up and around. I can walk on it. I, can, I have no weight-bearing restrictions. It's just, I had knee surgery, you know. Sorry? Currently, I am only on ibuprofen. I told Glenn that the lack of filtering and margins that come with hydrocodone might cause the church some embarrassment when talking about things like politics. So, um... I am just on 800 milligrams of ibuprofen at the moment. Uh, the hydrocodone is at home, and my left eye is twitching. So uh, I'm a mess, but, you know, I will stand occasionally for dramatic effect. Uh, so I prepared these slides and some of my notes uh, before the surgery, which was, in fact, a very smart thing to do. And then on Thursday or Friday, I don't remember which because that's all a... a, a, a blur now. I got in the mail my copy. I am still a member in good standing of the National Association of Evangelicals. Uh, some of you that have known me well know that back in the mid-90s, I had the opportunity uh, for about four years to be the president of the Colorado Association of Evangelicals back when my friend Ted Haggard uh, became president of the National Association of Evangelicals. And Ted had, previous to that, had held the helm. So I've been a member of the NAE for many years. And I generally ignore all the mailings I get and kind of 86 their, their magazines. But this came, uh, Linda got the mail for us, and Friday I started looking at it. It's called Evangelicals and Politics, where we've been and where we're headed. And I thought, well, now that's a curious thing. So I started reading it. I have to tell you guys, this is like the best magazine NAE has put out in 10 years, this particular issue. Some of you know me uh, better than others, but right off the bat, the first article, Taking the Hate Out by Ron Sider. Yeah, a couple of you are going, oh, it is just outstanding. Why Local Politics Matter, Craig De La Roche. Citizens of the Kingdom, Bill Wechterman, For the Health of the Nation by Galen Carey, and Humpty Dumpty Politics by Letha Anderson. And it's just outstanding. You can get the whole thing online free. Okay, um, I can make it available, and Evan and I have been talking, any references or resources, we'll, we'll put them as PDFs and make them downloadable. However, if you just 
type in uh, to your, your computer or your device, NAE, National Association of Evangelicals Magazine, there's a clear link, and, it, and you can download it free as a full PDF, okay? And I would really recommend it, because it it's just outstanding. The, uh, the history, where we've been and where we're headed, is painfully accurate, okay? And it's just a great, uh, I just think it's an outstanding issue. I really do, and I would highly recommend it. So much so that I almost thought just scrapping my notes and making a bunch of copies of this, but I didn't have time. So, uh, Okay, so what this class is not. How many of you, uh, especially those of you that are a little older, like myself, you remember when you go to church and you get the Christian voter's guide when you showed up at church, and it, it took all the work out of praying and discerning because it showed you how to just fill in your ballot. You know, wasn't that convenient? When, Glenn, when Pastor Glenn became a naturalized U.S. citizen about five years ago, I came to him and I said, now, Glenn, voting is a very serious responsibility, and so I know the next presidential election will be your first time, so if you want, I would be willing to fill in your ballot for you, uh, you know, to take that pressure off, and for some reason he declined, you know, being independent that he is, I guess. But, but seriously, you remember the voters' guides, and, and the idea behind it was, we're Christians, we, we share some common understanding and values and worldview on some issues, and so well-intentioned people have taken uh, the effort and done the heavy lifting to go ahead of us and research all these things, and then therefore tell us this is therefore how a Christian should vote for this person or this thing. And we're not going to do that, okay? Uh, I cannot remember in my lifetime an election uh, with more ambiguity uh, than, than this one. I don't know if any of you can. It's just, it's, it's kind of crazy. But secondly, this is not a forum where you can campaign for your candidate. And my immediate thought is, why would you want to? I've seen the ones on the ballot. Uh, <laughs> but that aside, this is not that kind of a, of, a, of a forum. This is a macro look at how do we as Christians thoughtfully and theologically engage. And I wanted to start with a guy that we all know of, John Wesley, what a remarkable statement, and you can't help but read this quote in the context of right now. I met those of our society who had votes in the ensuing election and advised them, one, to vote without fee or reward for the person they judged most worthy. Two, to speak no evil of the person they voted against. Ooh. And three, to take care their spirits were not sharpened against those that voted on the other side. Wow. Okay, so can we say amen to what John said? Okay, and so I want to start with the Bible, and if you have a Bible or a device that has the Bible, I'd like us to read just a few passages, and in fact, maybe you could help me with that. Could someone, find, someone with a nice loud voice find Psalm 19, verse 14? Who would find that one and read it out loud for me? Looking for, okay, up in the top. Uh, Proverbs 15, 1, would somebody grab that one for me? Okay, Proverbs 17.27, someone else? Proverbs 17.27, you just have to read it out loud, it's not, we're not asking that much. Okay, thanks. Ephesians 4.29, I'll read that one, that's one of my favorites. Colossians 3.8, who would read that? Thank you, uh, Steve in the back. And uh, Brooke, would you read Colossians 4.6? And James 1.19, we just need two more volunteers. Okay, uh, Bruce, and then James 3.9 and 10, okay. Okay, so let's just, just with a clear voice, read, your, your, read the re- reference and then your scripture, just one after the other, nice and loud. Start with the Psalm 19 uh, passage. 
Okay. Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as it is good for building up, as it fits the occasion, and it may give grace to those who hear. I think we can all agree with all of these, and I think it sets a tone for us. The one thing that has changed, and I'm going to show a little, uh, a little list that I thought was helpful. Relevant Magazine uh, published a couple days ago, seven things Christians should remember about this election. But one thing that has changed is social media. You, we always have had opinions, but you had to search out opportunities to share those opinions. I, I, think, I, I, would, I think many of you would agree with me. I have been appalled at the level of vitriolic language, the hatred, the anger, the, the, the angst that has been coming up in social media. Uh, people, I've, I have blocked people I never thought I'd be blocking, you know, just because it's like I can't deal with it anymore. I, I did it this morning. A young man that I knew when I used to teach uh, the DLA, the Desperation Leadership Academy, the New Life's in, uh, Residential Intern Leadership Program, a young man who, in his convoluted little thing, was comparing, I don't know how he did this, he was comparing um, Trump to FDR being flawed but really good leaders and comparing Hillary to uh, Adolf Hitler because they lived cleaner personal lives, but were evil. And I just, it's like, you know what? Click. <laughs> I, I, just, I, I just can't, I did the cheater's way. I, I unfollowed but remained friends, you know? So. <laughs> but I, I, you know, in my heart, I just thought, I just can't, I just can't, you fill your heart with that kind of stuff, and you just, you know, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. So when I was thinking of a person who would be right in line with me, the one person that did not come to my mind was John MacArthur. However, I found a surprising ally in Dr. John MacArthur, somebody with whom I would have a lot of theological and perhaps even worldview challenges with. But Dr. MacArthur says... And he's talking in the midst of, of the moral decay of our society. And John says, many think this is a political problem that will not be solved without a political strategy. 
During the past 25 years, well-meaning Christians have founded a number of evangelical activist organizations and sunk millions of dollars into them in an effort to use the apparatus of politics, lobbying, legislation, demonstration, and boycott to counteract the moral decline of American culture. They pour their energy and other resources into efforts to drum up a Christian political movement that will fight back against the prevailing anti-Christian culture. But is that a proper perspective? I believe not. America's moral decline is a spiritual problem, not a political one, and its solution is the gospel, not partisan politics. Who would have thought John MacArthur and I would be in such close agreement? The ultimate challenge is a spiritual problem, and the gospel is the answer. And of course, that, you know, the, the, everybody immediately says, well, what about, what about, what about? Well, we have to, yes, I, I, we know all that. However, are we citizens first of God's kingdom or are we citizens first of our national identity? So I, I thought maybe it'd be helpful since we're quoting scripture and we're looking at scripture a little bit, what was the politic and political worldview in the time in which the scriptures were written? And this is a, a, a list I, I compiled from an ethics class we taught some time ago. But it's kind of helpful to look at just these five basic areas and how the early church would have looked at these issues. And then we're going to look at the scripture. Uh, scripture is very familiar to all of us. So the first is the attitude towards the material world. Now, a lot of you, we have, we have a philosophy professor. I've got to stand up for a minute. So We have a philosophy professor with us, Bruce McCluggage here. So he's going to correct me, I'm sure, because I'm, uh, I took philosophy light. You know, I'm a, I'm a theologian primarily. Okay, okay. Fake it till you make it, right? Okay. Um, see, I did say the one advantage of, of my uh, journey of study is that um, I have three earned degrees, none of which have anything to do with math and hard science, you know? So that way there's fudge factor with all of them. But basically, the, the world, the, the Greek, then later Roman world in which the church was kind of trying to live was very different from the Hebrew world of the people of Israel, okay? And when we talk about dualism and Plato particularly, Plato, you've heard his name, right? You know, he's an old dead Greek guy. Plato and, and, and that thought was quick to separate between what you might say the mind or the spirit world and the practical physical world. So there was always a dualism. There was like, well, there's, there's this human world where we struggle, and then there's the real world, which is the world of either the thoughts or the mind or the spirit, or you can have different adjectives for that. But there was a separation. That was really distinct from the Hebrew world, which was all-inclusive. That's why it was important for the Jews that not only was their mind uh, uh, engaged in worship, but their body and the rituals and how they ate and their diet and how they cleaned themselves because every part of their identity would worship God, not just their mind or their spirit. Does that make sense? So that was very different from the Greeks. And there were kind of two factions within this Greek worldview. There was the aesthetic or monastic kind of faction that said, all that really matters is how we think and what we believe. And so we'll just live uh, very almost monastic, aesthetic lives where we won't really, um, you know, we'll just be great thinkers and, and, and not be uh, entrapped by the, the things of this world. 
But there was another version of the same philosophy that said, since all that matters is what I think, I can do anything with my body that I want to. And that became really the more prevailing and more uh, pervasive and more um, popular version of Greek thought because you got to do everything you wanted and still believe right. And so that was the world into which the early church was was first uh, existing. And so that's where you had kind of this crazy separatistic dualism. And then you had on the other side the Docetics, Docetism, didn't deny the deity of Christ. Docetism denied the humanity of Christ. It said that Jesus wasn't really a human being. He was God acting like a human being while he was here. And so, again, it was a disconnect between the physicality and the humanness of my relationship with God. Okay? So the early church had to combat that and say, no, how I live and how I raise my kids and how I eat and how I conduct business and how I do these things is as much a part of my faith as what I believe. And that affects worldview, and that affects, ultimately would affect politics, because politics is the civil, the civil way in which we uh, confront worldviews and confront and change cultures, right? And so... That was, a, that was a, a very significant sort of attitude. Now, where, where the dualism has had its problem is in our eschatology. What's eschatology? That's a big word. End times. Because you see, there was this, two, three hundred years before Christ, there was this view that, that in the end, the gods were going to create this beautiful world called Elysian, and it was going to be off in the clouds somewhere, and all the smart and good people would somehow get secretly taken up to this world. Up Is that sounding familiar? Yeah, up here. And everybody else would just be doomed to this hell on earth down here. Now, we just made songs out of it. I'll fly away. Oh, Think about it. On God's celestial shores. When, in fact, the scriptures talk about the new heaven and the new earth. And a, recre- a complete restoration and recreation of the, the creation that God has made. Not just a abandoning, burning, and then, you know, heaven pie in the sky and oh well. But rather that God looked at his creation and said it is good. Repeatedly said it is good. And so the culmination of the kingdom in our eschatology is that we do need to be on this earth now in a way that reflects God's kingdom. May your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That there's a sense that we are living today with an ethic and with morals that would reflect the future kingdom even right now where we live. And so, again, that's another way in which Christians would have to engage the world in which they live and not just ignore it and not just let it, it slide into oblivion or slide into to um, disrepair. So you had th- this whole philosophical issue. Then you have wealth and poverty. Now there's, a, there's two things that are very clear. One is that the early church and the scriptures even are very clear that there was a potential peril in being rich. Am I right? I mean, the passages are there. There's another thing that's true, though, that we do have to acknowledge, and that is prior to the Industrial Revolution it was almost impossible to find someone who was wealthy that had not attained that wealth through oppression and power. 
You were wealthy because you inherited from somebody else. And you were wealthy because you were in charge and everybody else worked for you. What changed in the last 150 years, 200 years, is wealth now became possible through being productive and creative, not being oppressive and necessarily uh, dictatorial. Does that, that make sense to you? know, I mean, you can be Steve Jobs and come up with an incredible idea, invent stuff, people want to buy it, and you're rich. And then you hire people and you hire more people. And so, so there isn't necessarily the one-for-one connection that wealth always represents oppression and, and uh, domination over the poor. However, having said that, certainly we still... We only have to go back and look at Enron and other examples in Wall Street to see that the warning is still valid. You know, wealth tends to corrupt. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't have said, you know, it's impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And, you know, how many of you heard, though, that was a, a little portal that the camel, remember that whole story? Which is stupid because if Jesus meant that, why would the disciples have freaked out? They would have gone, oh yeah, that little thing, the camel. They've said, how could anybody be saved? The disciples understood the, the, the uh, kind of the, how ludicrous the statement was, the hyperbolic dynamics of the statement. And Jesus said, with God, all things are possible. You know, yes, with God, a rich guy can even get into heaven. But the, but the trajectory of wealth is such that it does tend to empower people to oppress others. And that's the tension of wealth. Okay, so then you had the, the sexual ethics of the day. There was uninhibited sexuality in the culture versus uh, chastity. It had gotten, it, it was, everybody thinks their time in history is unique and the best or the worst, right? But the truth is, the, the level of uninhibited sexu- uh, sexuality and the culture of that in the early world of the church uh, at the time that Ephesians was written and First and Second Corinthians were written, was absolutely appalling. It, it truly was. And so, in a very real sense, to be a Christian was to come out and be separate from them, as the Scripture said. You know, there, there was a need to separate oneself from them. And so, you have all that kind of swirling... Uh, and, and then you had the status and the role of women. It was a male-dominated society, very clearly. Um, however, in the church, women were, for the first time, elevated as partners. Uh, and then you had this whole issue of violence and, and war. In the, in the early church, it is true that for the, about the first 300 years, the church was predominantly pacifistic. Okay? It's also true that there, 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 there was kind of a progression uh, St. Augustine was probably the, one of the first to communicate it or articulate it, though others thought it prior to him, to develop what became known as the just war theory. That there were times where the, uh, the act was so bad against the innocents that the only just thing to do was to stop the oppressors, even if that involved lethal force to stop them, but that there were very strong philosophical and, and theological boundaries that would justify using force against other people. And then just war theory kind of gave birth, sadly, to the 1100s, the Crusades, which was just unbridled, we want to kick them out of the promised land and we want to take it back over and we're going to, uh, in, in some of the... Uh, 
language of the, of the crusaders, uh, they didn't understand that we battle not against flesh and blood. You know, they, they thought we were, in fact, battling against flesh and blood. And, and it's a sad and, and terrible part of Christian and church history. So you have this whole milieu going on. And, and I just wanted to kind of put us back in their world. And probably the number one thing was, in those days, none of these people had a chance to vote. None of these people had a chance to change the trajectory of their society other than to just be the best version of them they could be. So that was going to come many, many, many centuries later. They didn't get a chance to vote out an emperor. So we have this one passage in Matthew. Actually, it's in Matthew and Mark. And I want to read it. Uh, I'll read the Matthew version. Mark and Matthew's versions are almost identical. Uh, And it's the render unto Caesar. So if you have your Bible, we're in Matthew chapter 22. And look at verses 15 through 22. Because this is always the one that comes up about Christians and politics. Matthew chapter 22. Verses, verse 15 through 22. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words, talking about Jesus. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. That's important. I want you to note the Herodians and the Pharisees are here saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why do you put me to the test, you hypocrite? Show me a coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. And we've all heard that story. Um, A couple of thoughts here. First of all, you've got two groups that never, ever got along. The Pharisees and the Herodians. The Pharisees, you know, we often... In our evangelical world and evangelical language, we always say Pharisees like these evil, legalistic, bad people. They were the strong, committed evangelicals of their day. They were the guys trying to keep it in the bounds of what Scripture said and keep people right with God. They got a little, you know, overzealous, as do many evangelicals today, you know, but they weren't the bad guys. They were the religious leaders that everybody looked up to. And they hated Roman occupation of Palestine. They hated the Romans and they hated everything it stood for. The Herodians, on the other hand, and they're named after Herod because Herod was kind of a turncoat in their mind, Jewish descent who was uh, operating under Caesar. And they supported Herod in the occupation, believing that God used whoever God placed in authority for God's purposes. Huh. Historically, they were enemies. Together, they conspire against Jesus. The only thing they could agree on is they hated Jesus, and they didn't trust him, and they saw their power base eroding when they, when they were confronted by Jesus. So from the Pharisees' perspective, paying taxes was wrong because paying taxes to Caesar would indirectly support the pagan temples and the pagan worship that Caesar uh, required of all of his subjects, Okay. And, and you got to say, you know what? Sometimes you just got to say no. Sometimes you just got to draw a line because I am not going to pay money to support that pagan temple. 
The Herodians said not paying taxes is rebellion against God-established authority that God knew before the foundations of the earth and that God had placed there. Ooh. Well, who's right? Gee, that sounds like today's issues, doesn't it? Well, a Christian just has to say no. A Christian just has to say yes. A Christian has to vote for this person. A Christian has to vote for that person. We have the same conflict today that they did. And Jesus manages in his one phrase to confound them all, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God's. Clearly saying, your first and foremost allegiance is to God. And then after that, the others will sort themselves out as you, with a, with a godly and discerning perspective, ask God for direction. You'll, you'll figure out what's, what belongs to Caesar. But you know what belongs to God, the things that are God's. So, what should we do? Should we, I'm, asking, I'm not asking rhetorically, um, is it our responsibility to oppose culture or to find God in culture, or is it our responsibility to transform culture? Yes. That's a tall order. How many of you have ever heard of uh, Richard Niebuhr? He wrote Christ and Culture. There's about seven of us. Uh, it's a great book. Uh, one of my bucket lists that I probably won't accomplish, because uh, <laughs> the bucket's getting closer <laughs> these days now is I would love to have rewritten uh, his book, Christ and Culture, in a much more reader-accessible, friendly way. It's a great book that's hard to read. <laughs> would you agree, Bruce? It's a great book that's hard to read. But Richard Niebuhr was a, a Lutheran theologian, um, uh, came over to the United States shortly before World War II, um, German Lutheran. He suggested five biblical worldviews that Christians see in Scripture regarding our interaction with culture. And we're going to look at this with regard to our political choices and be specific in a few minutes. Okay, and I want to look at them and then I'm going to give you a graphic that might help. Christ of culture, Christ above culture, Christ against culture, Christ in culture and paradox, and Christ transforming culture. The Christ of culture worldview tries to see Christ tries to see God redemptively in culture around us. Can you think of something in culture that can reflect God's glory and God's grace and God's beauty? Uh, Yeah. Rewarding good, punishing evil. Is that a good thing? That reflects something of God? You could even get more aesthetic and just say, Creation itself and, and uh, music and art and beauty and things where we manipulate culture in order to bring glory to God that way. Um, maybe something else. Uh, what's another way of, uh, of seeing Christ? Philanthropy, yes. Giving out of you what you have to help for the benefit of somebody else, not your own. That's, you can see Christ. In, in, there are aspects of the culture where Christ is there. He's redeemed it. You know, he has, you don't have to, when somebody comes to Christ, you don't have to do away with philanthropy. If you have a non-Christian philanthropist who gets saved, he doesn't have to renounce philanthropy. (laughs) You know, um, though some go with me, none go with me still, I will follow. You know, you're going to follow God into not giving or something. So that's a good example, guys. Now, Christ above culture, that's, that's a, 
different one. That's one that kind of makes a distinction. I think of the passage where it says, my ways are not your ways, my ways are much higher than your ways, you know. Uh, the, the sense that, that God will always be a bit transcendent up there. You know, imminent is God's right here, and we believe God is both imminent and transcendent. But this one's a little harder to put your, your uh, kind of the, hit, the, hit on the head of the nail, but the idea that, that there are some things that are, that are even loftier than what we experience, and in some aspects of, of Christ that just go above our culture. You know, it, it's just not... Um, it's not easily seen within culture. Christ against culture, that one's the easiest. What's a religious group that lives in America that their entire ethos is based on Christ against culture? Amish, exactly. They drew a line in the sand in 1840. Anything prior to 1840 is acceptable. Anything after 1840 is too modern and unacceptable. Right? So buttons are okay, zippers aren't. You know, that kind of thing. What other groups? Yeah, Bruce. That biblically, they like to be seen. Yes. Remove themselves from... That's exactly right. Because in removing themselves, they remove themselves from the temptation, they remove themselves from all that, and they can do more good being separate from the pollution of the world. Can you think of other... Things where Christians have opposed culture. Pilgrims, yeah, yeah. Um, they kind of some of the Native American issues were, <laughs> you know. Oh well, <laughs> my bad. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 It really is. It, it, the uh, yeah. Almost recreate our own culture. Yeah. We call it contemporary Christian music. <laughs> That's evil. Let's just completely recreate it and not do it quite as well <laughs> and put a Christian label on it. <laughs> Joe. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good way. That's a good, his, the point for the sake of the tape, uh, when a pastor encourages people not to be involved in politics because of how messy it is and kind of rise above it. Uh, the civil rights movement was messy and yet accomplished a great thing. You know, I mean, I was thinking in our, in our Christian history, you know, there were some, the abolitionist movements were, were, were certainly messy, you know, and yet certainly worthwhile. Um, what's one issue that just comes screaming at us in this one? I think abortion, you know, because it's, it's accepted by the culture, it's been sanctioned by the culture, yet we would still oppose it, okay? Okay. Um, and we'll talk about, we'll go more into that in a minute. Um, then there's Christ and culture and paradox. That's the, what did Jesus say? You're in the world, but not of it. That kind of, you know. Um, and then there's finally that, the, 
the last one, Christ transforming culture, where not only do we view things like some of the things we've commented, uh, philanthropy or uh, rewarding good and punishing evil, but we actually see what we would call Christian values become a part of the culture and we see the culture transformed. Um, some suggest, I read a, um, I took a test actually some years ago when, um, um, uh, Steve, you're, you're a missiologist too, your background's missiology. Um, back when, when everybody was going with Niebuhr stuff, everybody was trying to pigeonhole, you know, there are all those tests, you know, which, which side are, you know, which one do you come up on? I'm sure you remember some of those. And I took one, a guy was working on his, on his doctorate and um, his thesis had to do with uh, Niebuhr and, and the five aspects of culture. So I took the test and I came out, I came out strongly on Christ and culture and paradox, which bummed me because I wanted to be Christ transforming culture. <laughs> And he said in there, most people want to be on the bottom one, but most people find themselves like, yeah, you know, Christ and culture and paradox. That's where we, that's where we live, is Christ and culture and paradox. Yes, yes. That's exactly right. Because I think the reality is, and I, and I think you would agree, Steve, given a particular circumstance, any one of these might be the appropriate response, okay? So here we have uh, just a, a visual of it. Okay, let's take the abortion uh, thing. We believe as biblical Christians, we believe, we often use the term sanctity of life. So the question would be, uh, is it ever wrong to kill an innocent human being? The answer would be no. Therefore, would there ever be a politically expedient time for us to be, quote, supporting abortion? And most Christians would say, no. Am I correct? So that would be opposing the culture. I, have an, I had an ethics professor, uh, and it, probably one of my favorite classes. He was, uh, I went to Fuller Seminary, but he was actually one of the founders of Denver Seminary, Dr. Vernon Grounds. And he taught a, a cooperative class between Denver and Fuller. And what I did not know going into that class was that Dr. Grounds was an evangelical pacifist. I was unaware of that at that point. And he gave me an assignment, we all had a, a presentation we had to give, and he gave me the assignment of Christian evangelical pacifism, which was something I had given zero time to ever studying at that point in my life. And he even lent me about eight or ten books from his own library. He'd written four of them. In fact, one of them, he was in his 80s. He passed away a couple years ago, late 90s. Um, but he was in his early 80s at that time, and he looked at one of them, and he goes, oh, and he goes, I wrote this. <laughs> and he looked at me and he said, I admire your pro-life passion, but aren't you a bit of an inconsistent pro-lifer? And I said, oh, what do you mean, sir? And he said, if, and this was, this was his argument. He said, and he, he was very committed to uh, pro-life, anti-abortion causes, okay? I mean, his whole life. So, so he, he was. But he said, doesn't the argument go, it, we, would, we, would, we would prefer to abolish abortion, even abolish the law, even, even if one innocent child's life was saved, it would justify the political capital we would spend to, to overturn it, basically. And most of us would nod and say, yeah. He said, has the United States ever executed an innocent person? Yeah. He said, using the exact same logic, wouldn't it be worth 
abolishing capital punishment if only the life of one innocent person was saved. And then he said, wouldn't it be wise to not engage in warfare activity if the life of one innocent child or uh, non-combatant person's life was saved? And then he went on, he went like three or four in a row like this. And he kind of had me. (laughs) He said, I understand that these aren't clean lines. He said, I get that. But he said, we in the pro-life anti-abortion crowd didn't invent this category. Okay, and we don't own the whole thing. There are other people that feel passionately about things they believe are in opposition to the gospel that they must oppose. And just because it's not our particular issue doesn't make it less a biblical issue. And I've got to tell you, he just slapped me upside the head. He really did. Um, so when I look at this, I think, okay, let's look at churches. In fact, let's make it a little easier. <laughs> okay, we got the donkey. How did the donkey and the elephant? I mean, there's got to be a goofy story in that. It probably had to do with just some guy that got paid to draw logos or something. Um, Christ against culture. What would be the, quote, right, conservative, Republican version of some of those issues? Abortion. Gay marriage. Yeah. Um, any others? Those are, the two, those are the, the two biggies. What about the left over here? Uh, capital punishment, war and violence. What's that? Gun control. Yeah. Wouldn't, I mean... Be careful on your argument sometimes. If one innocent baby was saved by abolishing abortion, it would be worth it. If one innocent life was saved by abolishing gun ownership, it would be worth it. I mean, you know what I'm saying? It's like tit for tat, you know. That's true, because we have a Second Amendment. I, I understand that. Sure. Right. And it's not simple at all, which is why I could never land fully in the pacifist. I, I couldn't. I, I, I served as a police chaplain for a number of years, and I found myself personally saying, I can't not stop evil if I have the ability to stop it. That's where I personally came up with. But there are... Issues, and they're not just, I push back, uh, Joe, though I agree with you, I, I really do, but they're not just non sequiturs. There are people that feel as passionately about the, the uh, domestic violence issues as some Christians do about the abortion issue, you know? And for them, some rewriting of policy, maybe not abolishing, maybe not making some, you know, guns illegal or whatever, but, but some kind of political remedy in their mind, is the appropriate response to that. You know, just like many Christians feel a political remedy. Some Christians are saying, if this election doesn't turn out the way they feel it should, a liberal Supreme Court justice will be nominated and more dead babies will be the result. I mean, that's 
That's what a lot of people are saying. Even though abortion rates have continued to go down for the last 15 years significantly, regardless of who's been in the office, I think that's having to do more with ability to have access birth control and other non-moral, non-biblical aspects, most likely. Okay? But people are passionate on both sides of these. Okay? What, what about uh, the Christ of culture? We mentioned about... Um, rewarding uh, good, uh, uh, punishing evil. What about health care? Is affordable or even, let me throw this out, is universal health care an unbiblical idea or is that an unfair imposition of a, of a current category upon something that is not necessarily, quote, biblical? You know what I'm saying? There are people... Now, is universal health care affordable, possible, even, even uh, conceivable? Is it... Is it uh, what's that? Is it sustainable? Is it, those, those are all valid, valid terms. Is it evil at its core? There are people that feel strongly on both sides of that. I, I'll never forget. I was in uh, Kinshasa, uh, Congo... And we were, uh, it was, I was in Congo when uh, President Obama won the election, um, which was interesting. There were parades in the street. It was fascinating. Um, but um, I was being driven back to the airport by this one pastor who spoke very good English. And I mean, Kinshasa, Congo is my least favorite city on all the earth. I mean, I, I've traveled a lot, and I've traveled a lot to Africa, but it's 11 million people, and probably 9 million of them don't have homes. I mean, it's just horrific. And... Uh, he looked at me and he said, and I, there's just this teeming sea of, of miserable humanity. And he said, is it true your government doesn't provide health care for every person? And I said, that's true. And he said, why not? <laughs> and I said, well, there, it, that's a complicated, you know, uh, thing. And he goes, but you could afford to. We can't. We would if we could, but we can't. You can, but you don't. <laughs> Are we almost to the airport? <laughs> in his mind, the responsibility of government was to take care of the people, and he couldn't imagine a world in which they wouldn't. Now, I know it's not that simple. I clearly know it's not that simple. The sustainability issue is, is huge. You know, you better start something you can continue, not just with good intentions, start something that, that fails. But the passion with which people see some of these issues in regards to how Christ is engaging their culture, shows us how emotional everybody is on both sides of these things. This isn't just, I mean, uh, you know, the, the, in this room, we have people on both sides of, of, you know, we have people that would line them up under each of these uh, uh, silly, you know, trademarks in this room. Who's right? Yeah. The art of the possible? Yeah, Yes. Yes. 
of the possible. And what you just said, what Joe, Dr. Joe Hammack just said is important because he said it in a reasonable, kind, and rational way. And the only way it's going to happen is if we don't land on our thing and I either get all my eggs in my basket or I'm leaving the party. And I've just mixed metaphors ridiculously there. And the challenge is the, the, the vitriol and the emotional tenor in which everybody's communicating these days is not allowing that conversation. You know, it's like, uh, it's all my way or nobody's way. You know, I mean, uh, Larry. No, that's definitely not new. The only thing new about it is, is social media. No, I mean, in fact, I'm sure you've all seen some of these bumper stickers from... Uh, a uh, hundred years ago, you know, I mean, uh, if you vote for this guy, you'll drop dead of VD or something. I mean, it's uh, nasty politics didn't get invented recently. Brooke and then Larry. Well, just sure, sure. Sometimes even the notion Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Larry? Excellent. That's right. And, and you know, I, I thought of the entomology of the word uh, compromise to co-promise. You know, essentially bring two passions together and somehow work it out. The, the Relevant Magazine had an uh, interesting article, and they just, I, I just thought it was kind of fun. Because he just said, seven things every Christian should remember about this election. One, both political parties go to church. And yes, they do. They're in this room right now. I know for a fact I know for an absolute empirical fact that right now I have just looked at several conservative Republican Christians and several liberal Democrat Christians. I know that for a fact. And if, and if you are bothered by that, oh well. Because <laughs> it's true. Political talk radio and cable news only want ratings. Oh my gosh, can we remember that? They really, I don't care if they say fair and balanced or what else behind their, their moniker. They all just want ratings. And they want to get, I mean, that's the bottom line. What's that? Oh, yeah, of course, hits and likes. Those who argue over politics don't love their country more than others. They just love arguing more than others. <laughs> and I'm one of those. I have to turn it off. 
Thinking your party's platform is unflawed is a mistake. Scripture tells us to pray for our governing leaders and to respect those in authority. Six, don't be paranoid. Fact check before you post the stupid site. (laughs) I mean, seriously. And I love this one. Stop saying this is the most important election in the history of our nation. And what Relevant Magazine said, no. If you can point to one, it was when Abraham Lincoln was elected because back before then people thought they could own other people. So no, this is not the most important. And your grandparents thought theirs was the most important. And it's a narcissistic reality of every culture and every generation to think that they are the most important that has existed. You know, I remember um, the end of the world was going to come when Obama won. And then it was going to come when he won the second time. And now, you know, uh, the world didn't... My my older brother is a retired hippie, so he is extremely uh, left of center. And uh, my sister-in-law was a complete Bernie fanatic. You know, and, uh, you know, the, yeah, that's true. (laughs) She is. Um, She just, she sees, um, she sees the liberal version of the conservative fundamental Christian paranoia. You know what I mean? She just sees that the, the whole, everything's going, just like, she's paranoid. It's the best way to put it. There's just a paranoia. You know, now she doesn't claim to be a follower of Christ, but we do. And so, um, so here's the question. Um, what do we, and, and we can still talk for a few minutes, but I, mean, I knew this would just, you know, erupt. How do we as Christians engage in a thoughtful way? And I think Joe might have hit on the head of this, this art of the possible, this co-promise. Can we be agents of actually bringing some sinews together? Some little pieces together. Steve. Yeah. And by the way, MacArthur would be the Christ against culture predominantly. That would be where he would land. Yeah. I love Steve's comments for the sake of the, um, the, the tape uh, that we're kind of at the end of, of, of any realistic expectation that the West, Western civilization and culture is going to continue. Uh, and that's very fearful for some people because they're losing the only identity they thought they had. Now, my, my, what I thought was normal is, is becoming less 
relevant in this new emerging world, and that's always been the case. But what did God call us to be but ministers of reconciliation, which is bringing opposing parts together, you know? Yeah. Never did like zippers. Tractable, I like that. Great. I have a feeling you're going to bring it home. Yeah, that's so good, and, and it's, that's why we can't see, you know, judging, going back to these, um, um, these different positions, the tendency is want to land on one. And I, I see this as a, an issue of discernment and prayer. I can't, I can't just land on, there's sometimes I'm going to have to say, here's the line, and I, I, can't, I cannot go over that line. But there's got to be times that we can, like you said, agree, engage and find out what's behind the, the, the passion and the issue. And have you noticed that, that gentleness is contagious? You know, one of the things um, I mentioned last Sunday during the sermon, you know, I do this uh, radio show and we do that thing in the Independent. I have to be honest, what's, what's been fun is 
my friends, which are mostly evangelical and more conservative, obviously, than, than my fellow columnist friends, my friends have assumed that the other people, you know, my, my uh, gay and pagan and, you know, atheist liberal friends are angry and mean. And their friends have assumed the same thing about me. You know, we actually get along really well. They're very nice people, and we've chosen to just have a very gracious engagement even when we completely disagree. And we do it for the sake of modeling civil engagement and, and conversation, you know. And shouldn't a Christian be at the forefront of, of, of what we, all those scriptures we read about speech seasoned with grace, you know, I mean, rather than freak out, shouldn't we be the ones saying, wow, I see that's really important to you. How could we pray for you regarding that, you know? I mean, it, it just changes everything. Um, I, had a friend, I had a pastor I worked for uh, years ago in California during the Jesus Movement, and he's a wonderful man. Um, he doesn't have a lot of formal education because he kind of the typical Jesus Movement, you know, radical salvation experience. Uh, and and I'm, I've probably moved on from them theologically and philosophically in some ways, but he's a godly, godly man. One thing I appreciated about him, and to this day, he, he was engaged in politics. Uh, he, he wasn't telling his parishioners, don't ever get involved, but anytime somebody came with heated words, he would stop and say, how can I pray for you regarding that right now? I mean, I've, I've seen him on a, in a, a, a coffee shop or in a street corner or in the lobby of his church. This is a mega church. But if somebody was hot about something, he would have a way of disarming them completely, saying, I see that there's a lot of passion, a lot of anger, there's a lot of hurt. How can I pray for you right now regarding that? And I mean every time it just completely disengaged the anger and the hostility and it brought an opportunity for the Holy Spirit to be there. And he's been an example to me my whole life that I can't get mad at the people that I disagree with politically. And if I can reach out and I can just say, how can I pray for you? We can become brothers. I can't co-promise with them if I can't even get along with them. You know? So, okay, last one, because we've got to let you guys out to go to church. Joe. This is maybe a Yeah. Mm-hmm. Attainable. Yeah. Outcome. And sustainable. And sustainable. And, um, we oftentimes are critical of concepts like American exceptionalism. Mm-hmm. Right. But the concern is that if a segment of the electorate gets 51% of the vote, then they believe they should have the right to impose their perspective on everyone else. Mm-hmm.
That's so good. And the two most the two longest sustained periods of economic uh, prosperity in our country in the last 25 years, the two different ones occurred when the party of the president was different from the party of the majority in Congress. You know, and it was reversed in both cases. You know, you have Reagan and you have Clinton. But uh, point being, government has always worked best when one group didn't get everything they wanted. You know, it's just kind of an interesting check and balance. Um, boy, we, I'm glad we had nothing to talk about. Um, what I like next week, just a little bit on, on some of the history of our evangelical and Christian access into politics, but then I, I'm going to try to, and I apologize if I've been a little scattered, but I had surgery and I am what I am. But what I want to do is find some, uh, some questions where we can talk a little more intentionally about how do we engage? How do we be um, ambassadors of, of reconciliation, in a sense, in the, in the coming 50 days that we have? You know? uh, and it may or may not involve fasting from social media. I don't know. But, um, so would that be okay? We can look at that and, and talk about that. Uh, uh, I, uh, I don't know what I was going to say. I'm in pain. <laughs> Whatever it was, I'm sure it wasn't that good. Greg, would you mind closing us in prayer?